Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Um, thank you for coming. First, I just want to acknowledge that there are a bunch of people here who I really love, and um, so thank you for coming. And then there are some people here that I don't know but probably would love if I, if I did know you. I'd like to love you. Um, so tonight, um, my plan was to read not only from the book itself, but also from the remarkable number of angry and or weirdly erotic um, email messages that I have received in response to this book, um, but I have a little less time than I thought I did, so raise your hand if you're interested in the hate mail. Okay. I, I am too. So I'm just going to prioritize that, and I, I, I am, I am going to read it. Um, but also it's cathartic for me because, as you can imagine, there have been some nights in which I have stayed up reading all of the comments that we're all told we're not supposed to read online. And the misogyny and um, just the kind of general rage has been really, really remarkable. So I wanted to put um, some of that feedback back in, in dialogue with the book itself, um, if only for my own catharsis. So thank you for bearing witness to that. Um, and to contextualize the controversy around the book, for those of you who haven't read it, um, you know, w one of the basic arguments that I'm making in this book is that sometimes people have homosexual sex for heterosexual reasons. And um, for reasons that are embedded within the logics of heteronormativity. And, and so for that reason, it's not, I argue, it's not very useful to claim that any instance of homosexual contact is a, a signal of repressed, of a repressed bisexual or gay identity. Um, and it turns out that a lot of people feel very challenged by that argument or just flat, or just disagree. And it also turns out that 98 percent of those people are gay men, um, which has been very interesting. Uh, and so I think it's also time for a, a, a more of a discussion about queer, um, uh, queer experiences that sit outside of the gay male experience uh, and how that might push back on some of the prevailing logics like we're all born this way and so forth, which in my view have um, uh, been pushed forward by the mainstream gay and lesbian movement, which has mostly gay men um, at its helm. So I'm going to do a little reading from the beginning, the middle, and the end of this book. And I'm starting with the very beginning because the first few pages answer a question that's now been posed to me several times, which is, what's a nice lesbian like you doing writing a book like this? So um, I'll start there. 
About 15 years ago, in the late 1990s, I was a young dyke who would occasionally date boring straight men, especially after a difficult queer breakup. I'm not proud of this time in my life, but it's where this story begins. On one such date, one of these men sheepishly agreed to tell me some of the details of his experience in a fraternity at a Southern California university he had attended a few years prior. Looking for something, anything, to shift our conversation to my newfound queer feminist rage, I probed him for the most damning information about fraternity life at his notorious party school. I waited to hear contemptible stories of violations committed against drunken young women. I imagined that what he would tell me would offend my feminist sensibilities, that I would get angry, and that this would push me to stop seeing him and get back into the more personally meaningful and high-stakes terrain of queer life. I do not doubt that he had tales of women and rehypnol to tell, but when asked about the most confidential details about fraternity life, his response surprised me. He offered instead a story about a fairly elaborate hazing ritual called the Elephant Walk, in which young men inserted their fingers into each other's anuses. Participants in the elephant walk were required to strip naked and stand in a circular formation with one thumb in their mouth and the other in the anus of a young, typically white man in front of them. And if you buy the book, you'll get to see photos of this. Um, My one regret with this book is that I have not seen the elephant walk live. So if you can hook me up with that, I would appreciate it. Um, Like circus elephants connected by tail and trunk and ogled by human spectators, they walked slowly in a circle, linked thumb to anus, while other older uh, members of the fraternity watched and cheered. At first I was a bit shocked, but then uh, his story prompted me to recall another experience, one of watching a video in a senior seminar on sexual politics that I took while I too was an undergraduate in college. There were nine students in our course, and our final project was to produce a multimedia presentation that would creatively explore the, the, quote, complexities of postmodern sexuality. This was so the 90s. Um, My presentation, basically a fanatical ode to Madonna, did not receive a warm reception from uh, the graduate student teaching the seminar, but all of us were very impressed by an ethnographic film submitted by the only male student in the course. The video, a compilation of chaotic footage he had shot exclusively inside the bedrooms and bathrooms of his fraternity house, showed nude white boys laughing and holding down other white boys whom they mounted and pretended to fuck on top of a bunk bed. I recall the small frat house bedroom packed wall to wall with shirtless young white men wearing baseball caps, screaming hysterically, playfully pushing and punching their way through the crowd of bodies to obtain a better view of the ostensibly unfortunate boys underneath the pile of their naked fraternity brothers. The boys on top were laughing and calling those underneath fags. The boys on the bottom were laughing too and calling the aggressors fags as they struggled to switch the scenario and get on top. None of these boys seemed like fags to me, and I knew a lot of fags. Um, The student who shot and edited the video, himself a member of this fraternity, had remarkably little to say about the meaning of these images. Um, Quote, we're just fucking around. It's a frat thing. It's hard to explain. That's what he told me. (laughs) 
As a young feminist, I was repelled by the heteromasculine culture of abjection and aggression in which these encounters were embedded. And I believed that, the sto- that this way of relating to sexuality was not unrelated to homophobia and misogyny. Both of these men, the date who reported to me about the elephant walk and my classmate who had filmed his fraternity brothers engaged in pretend sex, seemed to take for granted that these were scenes of power and humiliation, not sex. These encounters can be read as humiliating or disgusting precisely because they involve normal, heterosexual young men behaving like fags or being subjected ostensibly against their will to homosexual contact. And yet, despite the homophobia of the participants, I was also captivated and excited by the existence of this kind of contact between straight men. The budding queer critic and pervert in me was impressed by the imagination required to manufacture these scenarios and the complex rules that structured them and the performative and ritualistic way that straight men touched one another's bodies or ordered others to do so. And so... um I'm going to read, uh, this actually did not come into my email, this is an Amazon review of my book that's just too good to pass up, and I, um, I want to juxtapose it with my own account of why I write, wrote this book, which hopefully you gathered was um, a, a kind of, an account of being a queer pervert who is interested in these kinds of contradictory, um, unexpected sex practices. But here's... Here's what uh, Lawrence Topping has to say on Amazon. I am a retired gay male clinical therapist, and I read this book. A profile. I believe the author, sometime in her youth, suffered an assault or was a victim of one of many forms of abuse at the hands of a straight white male. I also believe she subsequently never effectively resolved this traumatic experience, and as a result, she carries its emotional damage with her wherever she goes, whatever she does. Likely beyond her control, she allows the ill effects of this past trauma to negatively affect her thinking and her behavior in interpersonal contact with white men. White male bosses, co-workers, subordinate employees, clients, students, and white male members of the general public. (laughs) She's done so in all areas, work, school, family, neighborhood, church, and the internet. And now she's written a book. This emotional disorder is evidenced by her biased outlook on the subject matter, and especially through her unnecessary personal anecdotes. That's pretty good, huh? Um, Okay, so I'm going to move on to chapter four, um, which looks at how whiteness um, animates the homosexual sex of, uh, or I'm sorry, the the heteroerotic sexual encounters of um, straight white men. And here I'm arguing that um, whiteness basically helps, for white men, that whiteness helps to bolster what I call the homosocial alibi, or this idea that what's what's happening isn't even really sexual at all, that it's it's just an extension of white male bonding, white male friendship, and that it's it's utterly normalized in a way that we know um, 
um, is, is not the narrative that's applied to black men. So if you followed any of the um, tremendous media coverage about 10 years ago of black men on the down low, you know that the, the, the discourse very much centered on the question of what co what's going on in black culture that, you know, that black men are, you know, here's yet again another example of black men's dece deceitful sexuality or their predatory sexuality. Whereas white men can push the boundaries of sexuality in a way that sort of flies under the radar of public scrutiny and this kind of um, the the pathological gaze of popular science. So, so this is the argument I'm making here, and in, the, and, and, um, in this section I'm looking at a selection of over 200 personal ads placed, it on, placed on Craigslist Los Angeles. This was before Grindr. Um, otherwise, I would have looked there. But And these are ads written by people claiming to be straight white men seeking sex um, with other men. Of course, we don't know for sure if that's who they are, but I think that's who they are. Um, perhaps what one first notices about the ads placed in casual encounters is that they are elaborate, often describing sexual scenes with a dazzling level of detail. The authors of the ads typically identify themselves as white, straight, in their 20s and 30s, seeking sex with men, and then they proceed to offer numerous hetero-authenticating details, from homophobic disavowals of gay men, to misogynistic references to violence against women, to heteromasculine props like beer, sports, and straight porn. Collectively, the ads assert that being straight or gay is not about the biological sex of the participants, but about how the sex is done, the language that will be used before, during, and after the sex, the type of pornography that will be viewed, the types of alcohol and drugs that will be consumed, and the agreed-upon reasons for the sex itself. The following ads are representative of dozens of similar ads in which sex between men is articulated as a casual act of being free to be a man that need not have any troubling gay identitarian consequences. So I'm now going to read some of these ads. Are you ready? <laughs> straight dude, drunk and horny. Any straight bud want a jack? I'm 27. Here's the deal. Went out drinking and clubbing, thought I'd hook up with a chick, but it didn't pan out. I'm buzzed, horny, checking out porn. Is there any other straight dude out there who'd be into jacking while watching porn? I'd rather hook up with a chick, but none of the Craigslist chicks ever work out. <laughs> um... Uh, what happened to the cool bi slash straight dudes circle jerks? I'm 33. What happened to a group of masculine dudes just sitting around stroking, watching a game, drinking some brews, jerking, showing off, swapping college stories, maybe playing a drinking game and see what comes up? Um... Uh, straight jack off in briefs outside male bonding edging stroke. This is the title. Um, I'm 34. I'm a tall, blonde, built, packin' jock man with a big bulge in my jockeys. Dig hanging in, our, in just our briefs, man-to-man -man in the hot sun, working my bulge freely. If you're into jacking and being jacking and being free to be a man, let's hang. If you have a pool or a yard to lay out and jack freely, smoke some 420 and just be men, hit me up. No gay sex. I'm looking for legit male bonding, masturbating in the hot sun only. <laughs> Um, whacking off to straight porn. That's the title. Straight porn. 
gangbang straight by curious masculine white guy looking for a masculine guy get into stroking bone with a bud talking about pussy and banging the bitch uh and i'll read one last ad um any straight bi guys want to help me fuck my blow-up doll come on guys we can't always pick up the chick we want to bone right so let's get together and fuck the hell out of my hot blow-up doll her mouth her pussy her ass all feel great just be cool uninhibited horny and ready to fuck this bitch it's all good here lates So the scenes described in the ads, the props, the costumes, the dialogue, capture the drama and spectacle of white male homosociality. What do straight white men do together when they're engaged in male bonding? They get drunk or stoned. Um, And I should say I included many more of these ads uh, in in the book. Um, They get drunk or stoned. They watch heterosexual porn and they talk about pussy. The ads draw heavily upon the model of the adolescent of adolescent friendship or the presumably, presumably meaningless or protosexual circle jerk. Nostalgic commentary about being buddies or bros and sharing legit male bonding experiences constructs this dude sex as a kind of sex that bolsters rather than threatens the heterosexual masculinity of the participants. Only those who are man enough, quote, have the balls and chill enough will want dude sex or be able to handle it. Um, I want to read, I actually received very little male, uh, um, fan mail, hate mail, from straight men who you'd think would have responded to this book. Um, But the mail that I did receive was all confessional and quite juicy. Um, So I'm going to read one of those. This is from uh, Jack, probably a fake name, who um, is who is a straight guy who likes to masturbate with other guys. And he, um, some, some of what I just read was excerpted um, in salon.com. And um, he read the salon coverage of the book and wrote to me, um, wanted to share with me his, his sense of what this is about. When you're up and edging it along, consuming the wonders of new porn, there's a desire to share what's going on. And deep down, women don't really get it. Jacking off with another straight guy is not much different than popping the hood and comparing engines or watching the tools and techniques others use to perform maintenance on their equipment. Plus, it's so different than sex with a woman because she wants you to come and you don't want her to work too hard and heaven forbid have it soften up a little because then there's anxiety and she thinks she's doing it wrong. What your book is about is the desire to have an audience. I want to have someone watch me come and the shared thrill of seeing someone else blow out a load. It's not gay. Gay men want to suck it, taste it, fuck it, swallow your cum. What I do isn't touchy-feely. Everyone cleans up their own puddle of goo. (laughs) And we can use cameras on our mobile devices to make video of the excitement, the suspense, and the spectacular jettison of the jizz. And you can watch it slow-mo or frame-by-frame the next day and the day after that and get pretty excited all over again. Plus, we share these little clips with other straight men all over the planet. There's a section of this where he goes on to explain that there are websites where you can post your videos of your masturbation um, and compare them with other dudes. Uh, and then he, cl- he concludes, and when I have a swelled head, I even consider it my contrib- contribution to world peace, LOL. Um, okay, so I'm going to just move on um, to the last section, actually, so we have more time. Okay. 
fall over. Um, okay. So this is from the conclusion of the book. Uh, this chapter is called Against Gay Love, and it's my reflection on um, what these narratives about the meaning of straight men's homosexual sex mean for queer people. Um, so I'm, I'm going to end with that. Conventional wisdom would suggest that straight men give little attention to matters of gay love and domesticity. But in fact, attention to the boundaries of gay love or the imagined realm of earnest, unstoppable, lifelong gay yearnings are vital to straight men's heterosexual identifications, especially given the frequency with which straight men find themselves touching each other's penises and anuses for apparently non-loving reasons. Indeed, it is in telling stories of gay true love, whether of the homophobic or the pro-gay variety, that proclamations of heterosexuality find one of their more compelling outlets. This um, late 20th century turn to love, domesticity, and family making as defining features of gay life was clearly a joint effort, one embraced by gays and straights alike. Gay people and straight people both stood to gain, at least superficially, from suppressing images of leather-clad BDSM practitioners, radical fairies, angry lesbian feminists, um, trans people, street punks, AIDS activists, diesel dykes, and other queer freaks who were giving good gays a bad name. As historian Lisa Dugan has described, this homonormative turn paired with growing acceptance of sociobiological theories of sexual orientation swelled the ranks of complacent neoliberal subjects and shifted gay and lesbian attention away from revolutionary projects and toward middle-class aspirations and allegiance to the nation. But beyond this investment in turning gays into legible and complacent subjects, straights have arguably benefited in other ways from gay subjectivity's detachment from its earlier associations with promiscuous, impersonal, abject, transactional, performative, and experimental homosexuality. With gay identity now tethered to love and biology, these other forms of homosexual relating can be more easily taken up by straights, as they are increasingly believed to be distinct from the true meaning of gayness, monogamous same-sex love, and the gay and lesbian families that presumably result from this love. Um, in some, while the field of queer erotics has narrowed with this turn to homonormative love, the field of heteroerotics is ever-expanding to include performative same-sex hookups, drunken homosexual accidents, mouth-to-anus games and rituals, bromantic stunts, and homosexual daring-do, all of which carry no identitarian or structural consequences. Um, straights want and need non-straights, both gay and queer, to be sincere about our homosexuality so as to amplify the frivolity of their homosexuality. Dovetailing with biological narratives that speak to our authenticity, the primary way we are called upon to perform our sincerity is to narrate our queerness as an expression of romantic love rather than a political critique of gender and sexual normativity. Despite the title of this chapter, Against Gay Love, I'm not actually proposing we take a stand against gay love in and of itself, but that we take a stand against the forces attempting to erase queerness and reduce all non-straight homosexuality to romantic, couple-centered love. What a sad state of affairs when the couple, and not queer collectivity, becomes the focus of our thinking about queerness. 
But while I suggest that we throw romantic, couple-centered love out the window of queer politics, I'm not certain that we should do the same with sincerity. How might we mine the notion of sincerity for its transgressive queer potential? Within heteromasculinity, homosexual sex is not gay when it is meaningless and inconsequential, brought on by coercion, or when it takes the form of homophobic play-acting, daredevil heroics, or radical art. These are all examples I give in the book. Emptied of romantic meaning, the emphasis on not gay homosexuality is placed instead on naughty and ephemeral homosexual sex acts. One way to intervene in this co-optation of defiant homosexual sex is to recenter sex acts themselves rather than centering gay lesbian identity or gay and lesbian couples in discourses about the meaning of queer life. We might express with all queer sincerity our attachments not to the identitarian or romantic meaning of our sex acts, but to the ways that collective queer sex acts, those passed down through generations of queer bar patrons, kink enthusiasts, pornographers, sex workers, commune dwellers, sex educators, and others, are what incite our feelings of love, longing, and romance, not especially or only for our sex partners, but for our tribe. We might explain to straights that there is no queer sexuality without the queer commons. My partner and I, for instance, have been together for 10 years, and we know that our sexual relationship is palpably incomplete when isolated for too long from the place of its origin, public queer space, namely the queer bar. It is in that space where both of our genders have a wholly different meaning that they than they do anywhere else, and where our shared fetish for insubordinate bodies and genders find its best outlet, that our sex life comes to life. In many ways, straight white men's homosexual encounters look remarkably like the kind of queer collective sexuality I'm describing here, communal, public, kinky, defiant. But while straight white men use these features as evidence of the meaninglessness of homosexual encounters or as a signal of their true loyalty to heterosexual normalcy, we queers know that these features are the lifeblood of queer difference to be cherished, preserved, and treated with reverence and sincerity. So that's it, folks. Um, I, we could do two things. We could do both things. Questions. Um, and I have even more mail. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Do you want to hear? Oh, yes. Judith, hi. Um, you know, I thought that was interesting at the end about It's been going on for a long, long time. Um, the the logics that allow straight-identified people to justify their homosexual contact and retain their state stra status have evolved over time, and they're different for men and women. So, the um, you know. 
today, now, the logic for that's that's made available for women, or that the um, kind of free pass that's given to women is, uh, you know, you can touch another woman, make out with another woman, have sex with another woman, but if you're doing it for your boyfriend or for male spectators, um, then it's, you know, you can retain your heterosexuality. Most of us are familiar with that kind of logic. If we see straight women in a club sort of getting, you know, getting it on with each other, we don't say, oh, look at those sad lesbians in the closet, you know. (laughs) No, we don't. We, we, We know what that means culturally. Um, but we're far less familiar with um, the, the ways that straight men, um, the opportunities that are provided to straight men to have intimate physical contact with one another. And I'm even reluctant, you know, to call it sexual because often, um, men don't think of it as sexual, you know, so when, when these men are, um, you know, sticking their fingers in other men's butts, um, in the Navy, you know, one of the rituals that, um, or a section of the book that I was going to talk about, um, is the U.S. Navy's crossing the line ceremony, and this is a, this, this ritual has been happening for decades, uh, it, um, is a t- institutionalized, time-honored, uh, celebrated ritual in which sailors, when they're crossing the equator for the first time aboard ship, um, have sewage, rotten food, grease, objects shoved into their anus, and then other sailors eat those things out. Um, what I used as the litmus in the book was, okay, if two gay men were on a date and they did this with each other, would they likely have reported that they did something sexual? And I think, you know, if, if gay men were on a date and they ate something out of the other dude's anus, they'd say, yeah, that was... That was sexual. Um, and yet in the context of crossing the line of that, of that um, initiation ceremony, it's not perceived as sexual. And so, um, and yet I want, to, I want to say here, if we look at all of the contexts in which men, straight identified men are touching each other's penises and anuses, we find that this is happening um, in a remarkably broad range of settings and a lot, it's happening a lot that straight men are constantly manufacturing opportunities to put their fingers in each other's butts. And so to just dismiss it outright as not sexual, I think, um, is to um, kind of perpetuate this double standard, certainly if we knew that women in the military were... um, you know, penetrating one another, we would maybe we'd we'd recognize that there was that was perhaps power inflected, but we would likely think something sexual was going on there if women were doing that with each other. And yet, there's this story about boys will be boys, or when men do it, it's um, simply because it's repulsive, or because it's about hierarchy or dominance that excuses the behavior, especially for white men. And so. I don't know if that really answered your question, but yes, it's been happening for a long time and the the logics are evolving. The two examples were somewhat tribal. So you have the fraternity, you have the whole team, the military. So it's a large uh, structure. Right. Um, so I see that within, and it's almost a uh, 
bought Nakoda, but you can get away with an awful lot of things if you're bought Nakoda. Do you sense that more so than the individual? Could you see a gamer do that? An individual, a person that's on the Davenport doing gaming? Right. Is there the psychological difference with the mob? I love that you use the word Davenport. Yeah. I haven't heard that for a while. Um, yeah, uh, well, part of what I argue about those Craigslist ads is that it's interesting because so many of those personal ads evoke the institution, even though they're detached from the institution, yeah. right? They're happening in some guy's living room. But they'll often say things like, um, you know, what happened to... Uh, you know, what happened to that time of adolescence when we would all just get together and jack off, or they'll make reference to um, frat types that they have, a, you know, they're desiring men who they associate with the fraternity, or jocks. So there's often, I, I, I think the thing that's going on for men is that whereas women are allowed, straight women are allowed to have sexual contact um, in less institutional environments as long as it's for male onlookers, that straight men, the opportunities that they're afforded are in the context of these institutions. It doesn't mean that they're not happening outside of those, but that the, ins the institutional con um, context provides a lot of legitimacy um, because it's a place where people can claim, you know, there's peer pressure involved, so you can just default, right, right. Um, but I also look at examples, um, of the Hell's Angels. Now, this is again, it's 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 not an institution, but it is a collective. And um, some of those bikers, when the the they would see a journalist or a photographer was there, they would start to make out with each other. And um, I draw on Hunter S. Thompson's account of that uh, and what he thought was going on, um, which you know. I, I disagree with a little bit, but 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 part of what was happening there was um, being able to draw on what was already recognizable in the culture, this idea that sometimes straight men can touch each other's bodies in a way that's read as a sort of fuck you, a defiant stunt. You see, um, that, with, you see that with a woman, with the, the, the pack of a woman doing that? No, again, because the narrative about women's sexuality is quite different. And so, um, again, the, the primary way that women get to, um, that straight identified women get to have same-sex experiences is through um, um, a, an erotic account encounter that has been sanctioned by men. But something that's interesting there, too, is that when straight women um, have sexual contact with other women, it's for men, and when straight men have sexual contact with other men, it's also for men. It's all performative for men. Um, I was curious, you said a lot of your um, hate mail came from gay men, and I was wondering why you think that is, why you think gay men feel the most challenged by uh, this book and the content. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to read one more of these, um, maybe two. Okay, so this is from um, Adam Sayarto, a white gay man. 
he says, um, sent this email to me. I actually went out of my way to find you on the net, and I've concluded one thing. You are bigoted, ignorant, and self-entitled with no redeeming qualities. Your little vendetta against hetero males of European descent is childish, sexist, and racist. Your left-wing radicalism is hardly hidden and completely nonsensical. That's all, but then he goes on. <laughs> I hope you get over your dangerous racism, sexist issues one day and realize that some men are straight and don't fuck other guys. And yes, I'm aware you only point out white males and attempt to demonize or defame them due to your internally racist nature. Oh, and please stop claiming to be a representative for gay males. It's quite embarrassing. My sexuality is not a soapbox for you to preach your idiocy from. Um, and then here's from Jonathan Burke, a gay man. You don't know what you're talking about because you aren't us. Your book is insulting, something Ann Coulter would write. Interesting. Uh, but when you're talking about the men we sleep with, the ones you call straight, we, are a bit, we know a bit more than you because they are more like us than you. To say that being straight is about wanting to be straight would apply to most of us gay men. We all want that. You are not us. Please stop. Signed, all gay men. Um, so so I, I think that's very telling, and as I followed the comments from gay men on Queerty and you know some of the other um, uh, you know, um, press coverage that I got and all of the commentaries, I think a couple things was going on that um, for many gay men, there was this. There's, I think, still this perception that it's, of course, always better and easier to be straight, um, and that no one would ever choose to be gay uh, um, because that means, you know, a life of discrimination. And so, for me to allow the men, you know, straight men, to get the goodies of homosexual contact and still. Um, to argue that it's it's most productive for us to still read them as straight feels like I'm kind of defending them or giving them a gift of some kind, rewarding them. And that was such an aha moment for me because from a queer feminist perspective, for me, straight is a slur. It's, it's, it's um, you know, to, I, I would be devastated to be straight. Um, and so uh, what I was saying is let's let these people just stew in the juices of heteronormativity. I certainly don't want these men in, you know, like I'm not inviting them into queerness. Um, so, so that was part of, I, I think, what's going on is that gay men for, um, you know, our, the, Vera Wisdom's book, Queer by Choice, is an amazing book in which she, you know, she makes a strong case that gay men are far more invested in the um, born this way narrative than most lesbians are. And that's been explained away as a biological difference between men and women, and that's not what I think is going on there at all. Um, and so I think it was that. It was a kind of essentialist reaction to the suggestion that um, we, we, might, we might recognize that there's the possibility of heteroerotic homosexual contact. And then I think the other thing, I can't prove this, but this is the feeling that I had. Um, I'm just going to say it, that I really feel like gay men have dominated the mainstream conversation about what it means to be gay. And for a lesbian to come out and say, I want to re-theorize that, and I want to re-theorize that from the perspective, from my experience as a queer dyke, um, I think just triggered a lot of gay men's sense of entitlement and misogyny. 
Which isn't to say that there aren't gay men who couldn't disagree. I, I, I feel bad saying that because it sounds like, well, anyone who disagrees with my book is a misogynist. That's not what I'm saying. But I think the, um, you know, I've gotten some really cons great constructive feedback from, especially from a lot of bi folks. Um, but the the ad hominem attacks, you know, the stuff about, um, you know, trying to get at why would I psychoanalyze why I would write this book, I think that comes from this place that I've stepped out of bounds by writing a book about men. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tristan. So another group that's mad at you uh, are the bisexuals. Right. Um, I've seen a lot of people online who are bisexual who have said that you have erased us, all the men in this book are bisexual, you're continuing with bi erasure, which is a you know chronic right. problem for queer people. Right. Yeah, and I'm really um, certainly very sympathetic to that. Um, I, I'm, I'm invested in bi-visibility, so I care about that, so that was difficult for me to um, see the book being read that way, though I will say that a lot of the people who are reading it that way hadn't read the book. Um, uh, so the short answer to that is that, you know, I view bisexuality as a queer identification in its own right. It doesn't make any sense to me that we would say any person who has ever had heterosexual sex and homosexual sex in their lifetime is bisexual, especially if that person has no interest whatsoever in identifying that way. But there, there's this feeling, I think, for a lot of queer people, and it makes sense because we're, we've been so hungry to swell our ranks, you know, because it feels like safety in numbers and we want to claim everybody. Um, but to uh, some of the feedback that I was getting was basically people saying t to me, we should force those people to identify as bi who don't identify as bi. Um, and it also felt to me like it really minimized the significance of bisexuality as a mode of queerness, you know, as its, as its own um, uh, critique of heteronormativity. So that's, that's the answer. Anything else? about in the section all of those different um, apps and other diagnostic tools that people can get. Yeah, so, um, so part of what's happening is that, you know, now that we have um, moved into a time in which the majority of Americans, the most recent data um, indicates that the majority of Americans now believe that people are born with their sexual orientation intact. 
And so most Americans believe that, and yet we have actually no test. Like, you can't go to the drugstore like get a pregnancy test. <laughs> there is no definitive way. So really, this concept for most people is still it's an abstraction, you know, that people will think, well, I'm so gay that uh, I'm sure if some scientist somewhere could look at me under the microscope, they'd find my, you know, gay gene or the, you know, the fetal hormone wash or whatever, you know, it is. Um, and yet none of us actually have that opportunity. So, so we're kind of imagining this science, you know, that the science would verify our story about ourselves without ever having that done. And so um, what Voris is referring to is that they're now... Um, you can get apps on your phone uh, that are like, is my boyfriend gay or straight? A sort of definitive guide to um, you know, determining that. And so what I argue in the book is that there's, a, there's sort of a hunger now for um, these, these technologies that will stand in for the science that could theoretically prove whether we're really gay or really straight. Um, but since we don't actually get to have that, we there are various kinds of books and other other um, and these apps and things that people can people can use. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.